Today, you can kind of see by what I put on the board, we're in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. And I want to organize, you know, trying to focus each time we get together with a takeaway application thought. Um, And this morning, that takeaway is integrity and leadership. And in Paul's uh, wonderful, wonderful section here of chapter 2, he reviews the relationship he had with the Thessalonians. And he's answering, especially in verses 3 all the way down uh, to verse 12, He's answering what apparently were charges against him. But uh, let, me, let me start with um, uh, one of the men that I greatly respect, and I'm sure most of you at least have some uh, opinion of him, and I'm largely positive. I mean, everyone in the room's heard of Billy Graham, right? That's not an unforeign name to you. Okay. Graham is, you know, <clears throat> he's uh, ill, he's in his 90s, still living, um, amazing man. But... Um, I read a biography of him a couple of uh, months ago, a new one actually, but uh, I had, I discovered something that I didn't know. Maybe you guys knew this, but um, 1948 when he was forming uh, what would eventually become formally the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, which is the governing organization of of all his ministry over the years, he gathered four of his really close friends uh, in uh, Modesto, California. And they spent several days, and this was the question he asked them. Why have ministries and leaders in business, as well as other organizations, why have they failed? And he said, I want, I want to know, based on all the analysis you can possibly put together, why do they fail? Why do individuals fail? Why do ministries fail? Why do uh, pastors and churches fail? Why do businesses fail? And they came up with four major reasons that they discovered. One is the basic misuse of money, which, you know, that's a broad topic, but it can cover so many things. But the basic point is you're not being honest with the use of money. Whatever that can mean is sexual immorality. And third was exaggeration of the results of your ministry. And in this case, of course, it's an evangelistic ministry. And the fourth one was criticism of other leaders, in Graham's case, of other clergy, of other revivalistic evangelistic leaders. And so, I mean, they talked about this. They went over that again. And again, those four items were misuse of money, sexual immorality, exaggerating your results, your numbers or whatever, and then uh, criticism of other leaders, of other people, of other, in this case, clergy. And so they formulated this into a, into a statement <clears throat> that's called the Montrose Covenant, the Montrose Manifesto. And Graham has lived according to those four standards his entire life. And BGEA is known for that. There's never been any fraudulent charges brought against him. Graham has never been charged with sexual immorality. I mean, you know, you just go down through it. And in the book, he talks about, Grant Wacker is the author of the the biography, but Wacker talks about the extent to which they went to fulfill that. Like, for example, when Graham would, because, you know, he traveled so much, when he would go into a hotel, he always had another man go in ahead of him into that room because he didn't want some tabloid a reporter in there with a camera and a, and a woman that he just snap a photograph that's very suggestive that Graham was in his hotel room with a woman. Um, he never ever traveled alone with a woman. I mean, you know, some of the staff of BGEA are women. He never traveled alone with a woman. He always had two men with him when he was with a, a female colleague in, in the BGEA ministry. Uh, in terms of his taxes, if he ever, <clears throat> his accountant came to him and said, you know, you can take this deduction, but it's a little questionable, but I think we can, no, pay it. I, I don't even, I don't want to go through that. Um, if it's solid, legitimate deduction, we take it. But if it's questionable, we're going to pay the tax. I mean, it's that kind of uh, upfront, forthright commitment to integrity. And I, what I, and that's what I didn't know, that early, this was 1948, early on, after this investigation, they decided on those four characteristics. They would always be, uh, in the ministry and in Graham's personal life, in terms of handling of money, always above board. 
go to extreme lengths to never even give the, give the appearance of evil in sexual immorality. And then, and this is kind of a difficult one for a ministry, but uh, you know, never exaggerate the numbers of people that come to our meetings or that make a decision for Christ. Let's be as accurate as we possibly can. And then Graham, uh, and if and I, I thought after I read that, you know, that is really true. Graham has never never publicly condemned other Christian leaders. He may disagree doctrinally with them, but he doesn't personally condemn them. And I thought, you know, that that struck a chord with me, that that's the reputation he wanted to have for himself and for the ministry. And I mean, I, I'm assuming you all are fairly familiar with that. That's the one thing he's known for. People think of Billy Graham, regardless of whether they agree with everything that he's doing or not, he is a man of integrity. He's known for that. And it's a result of that, uh, of that commitment they made, both he personally as well as in the ministry team itself, to what that integrity would look like. But I think that's really a, I think that's really a refreshing approach to leadership. I tell my students, and I, I don't do this hardly anymore, I used to speak to a lot of youth groups and recruiting and stuff like that, but I used to tell uh, young men and women, you need to decide beforehand the kind of person you want to be. You know, you're a young gal, you have to decide right now, what are the boundaries you're going to set in terms of the physical nature of relationship you'll have with a guy? You don't make a decision like that when your mom and dad are away for the weekend and you're in the house alone and your boyfriend comes over. You don't make that decision then. You make it long before then. You decide, what kind of a person do I want to be? Because we're talking about character issues. And so all of that is by way of introduction of what Paul is talking about in this passage, beginning particularly in verse 3. We covered the first two verses the last time I was here, which seems like seven months ago, not two weeks ago. But he, he is dealing with, apparently, and I summarized it in my own words, three charges that were being leveled against him. Now, uh, I know you can't believe this, but I'm really getting warm, so I'm going to take my jacket off. But um, I should maybe remind you of something. I think we may have talked about this before, even when we were in, in our Philippian study, but let me quickly review something. In the ancient world, it was a very common thing in a city like Thessalonica. And this is, you know, a fairly important city on that major roadway we talked about. And so it was been very typical for uh, the town to have people coming through town as lecturers, as teachers, philosophers, um, you know, commentary, that kind of thing. And you would go, they would rent a lecture hall, and you would go there, and you would pay a fee to hear them talk or hear them lecture. And presumably, this is an inference, but I think it's a legitimate one, the, some of the people in the community who were very hostile about Paul was comparing. He's just one of those guys. He's just one of these guys who comes in. And, you know, they're saying what you want him to say, and you're going to pay a large fee, and you're going to get all excited, and, and he's going to leave town. And, you know, he's, he's gotten what he wanted, and hopefully you've been happy with what you've heard him say. And, and they're saying he's just one of those guys, and he's just a typical itinerant guy who's Promoting error just to tickle ears and make it sound good. He's got really nefarious motives. He's interested in greed. And he's deceptive. He's manipulative. I mean, that's, you know, can you think of people that would apply to those characteristics today? I mean, it's, it's that kind of a charge. And so they're lumping Paul into these categories, and he responds to that. And not in a defensive way, but he responds to that in a way that you can see. A little bit like, I use the example of Graham in 48. He has thought through this because I am representing Jesus Christ. And what I do must always be above board, must always be associated with practices of integrity, because ultimately and fundamentally, I am accountable to God. I am accountable to you people, he said, but I am fundamentally, I'm accountable to God. And if I do any of these things, God's the one who's going to hold me accountable. So I'm setting us up for this uh, passage of Scripture. You with me? Any, any questions? It's going to 
hopefully it's going to make a lot more sense because he is he, he's surfacing the charges and he's responding to the charges. Not in a defensive way because ultimately and fundamentally again, the gospel is at stake here. The purity of the gospel is what's at stake. And that's how Graham looked at it in 48. The purity of the gospel is what's at, is what's at stake here because I represent that. Okay? Verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error, impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. And I just surfaced those there on the board, kind of my own words. But So they must be the things that these other critics were saying about Paul and Silas, Timothy. On the contrary, verse 4, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Let me stop there. There are two words that are really important there. The first word is the word that's translated approved. Does every one of your translations have that? Okay. That, that's dakimadzo. That is a very, very important term in the New Testament. It was used in the metallurgical industry. Do you know what I mean by that? Gold, silver, all that stuff. And you refine those metals when they're, you know, ore taken out of the ground. You refine them. You've got to put them in a hot cauldron and get them up to a certain temperature where all the junk is separated so that what comes um, out when it's all done is something as pure as it can possibly be. That's the word there. So this isn't a superficial, shallow testing by God. God. God has approved these men. He called them. He's equipped them. He's empowered them. And then the second key word is entrusted. Do all of your translations have that entrusted, the word entrusted? Okay, that's a stewardship word. That's... Um, it's a little bit of a derivative. We get our word economy from that. It's oikonomia and all of its derivatives. It's a, it's a stewardship. God has entrusted him, and, and Paul, uh, Silas, and Timothy are the ones that we were introduced to in verse 1, but these are the people who ministered in Thessalonica. He's entrusted us with the gospel. Let's put it another way. <clears throat> God has approved us and he has trusted us enough to deposit in us, as his stewards, the most precious thing on earth, the gospel. The path to eternal life. The, 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 the way in which people can experience the salvation from their sin and guilt, etc. God has deposited that in us and entrusted that to us. Why do you think he says that? It's, it sounds like he's tooting his own horn, as my mother used to say. It sounds like he's being proud and arrogant. I think it's kind of like what you said. He might have been accused of something in the past, and he just wanted to make sure that they knew that he was entrusted with the gospel. He's not there for, for gain for himself. He is representing the living God. And it's... It's like, I it's Paul speaking, I take this seriously. I want you to take this seriously. I am not doing this for these reasons. I'm doing this because he says in another, it's in Corinthians, he says in another, they're charging him with stuff too. He says, I'm constrained by the gospel. I don't do this because I necessarily sought to do this. I do this because God has asked me to do this and has entrusted this to me. And I do it because I don't have the other choice. And it's my job. It, huh? It's my job. Well, in a way, but it's 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 such a sacred stewardship entrusted by God. I'm taking this seriously. And then he goes on, we are not trying to please people, but God. And I, you know, wrote that over there. We're seeking to please God, not people. It's not deceptive, it's not manipulative. We are seeking to please God. And and then that very important relative clause, who tests our hearts. What does that mean? Who tests our hearts. What does that mean? Well, my translation says examines. Okay, examines a great synonym. 
So, Daryl, since you gave us a good translation, what does it mean? <laughs> You're going to wish you hadn't responded. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. What if he says God's examining or testing our hearts? What does he mean by that? When he says heart, you know, obviously, I'm sure you're not talking about that little organ that pumps your blood through your body. What What does that mean? Heart is a metaphor for what? Well, your inner being, not your not inner being. Outward. What would be? Uh, it's good. You're out in the warning path. I want you to come home. What um, <laughs> in our hearts, in our inner being? What I mean? What's God examining? What's, what's He looking motives. at? Okay, motives. I, a couple of you said that. Motives. Why is that important? Because it gets to what it gets to what these guys are saying about him, about him and Silas. That you know, you, go, you guys are in it for personal gain. You guys are in it because of the fame you're going to gain and the name you're going to gain in the Eastern Mediterranean world. Um, that may or may not happen, Paul says, but that's not why we're doing this. And God is the one who makes the evaluation because God knows our hearts. Heart is, in the Bible, generally speaking, when it's used as a figure of speech, heart is the center of our will. When Jesus says, you remember he's asking a question, what's the greatest commandment? And remember his response, you shall love the Lord God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mark's gospel gives us that complete response. And that's a great, that's a holistic response. Heart's the center of your will. Mind is the center of your intellect. Uh, soul is the center of your emotion. And strength is your physical body. A holistic love for God. So in that area of motivation, will, why am I doing what I'm doing? God evaluates that. So Daryl said that means that they're accountable to God. Why tell these people that? You, you, one, you obviously didn't hear the question, or two, you didn't understand the question. But why is it important to tell them this? Because that God tests our heart. They too are accountable. It, it's important for them to understand that they are accountable. Especially, especially Woody, in terms of motives. I don't know your heart. I mean, I'm, and I, I don't. I don't think you know my. We don't know one another's hearts. We don't know that complex of why we do what we do. We really don't. I mean, and I think. I, I mean, I like how you put that, Woody. It, we have to be very, very careful that we don't sit in judgment of one another's motives. I mean, we can call you know, a brother in Christ to account for some of the things that we see and, and talk to them about maybe things that we see in their lives, but at the level of motives, that's hard, because I don't know your motives. I don't know your heart. But And you see this in a, in a number of parts throughout both the Old and the New Testament. God knows our hearts. <laughs> and I mean, that's... Uh, that's both comforting, but also convicting. Because it's comforting in the sense that, wow, that's the extent to which the Lord really watches over me and cares for me and is interested. But it's also convicting, which means I really can't hide anything from him when it comes to motives. All right. Now, you know verse... Five, that we never used flattery. That's getting to the deceptive charge. Because you flatter someone. Why do you flatter someone? Okay. Manipulation. Somebody said it, manipulation. Flattery is very manipulative. If it's not genuine. Because what you're doing is you're flattering someone to get something from them. To get a response or whatever it is. And Paul says, that, we didn't do that. Nor did we put on a mask 
to cover up greed, which, and without question, indisputably, this was one of the major reasons why these itinerant people came through town. I mean, we have some of the records of some of the things they charged. It's unbelievable. Paul says, no, no, we didn't do that. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise and self-elevation, praise from any human being, nor from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our prerogatives. That needs to be explained. What prerogatives? The prerogatives as apostles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul lists three major rights apostles have. He says we could have insisted. And one of those was the right to be supported. But he says, he's going to say, we chose not to do that. As a matter of fact, Paul, this, is, this we know from both the um, epistles of Paul as well as in Acts and so on. Paul never, never took pay. I mean, he never charged for his ministry. People gave him love gifts, that's one, but he never charged for his ministry. As a matter of fact, he chose to have a work that supported himself. What was his job? He was a tent maker. And uh, some other people that uh, he would connect with uh, and travel with um, were Priscilla and Aquila are two examples of that. But they, they made tents. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure what that would look like. Do you? What, making tents, what's that, what does that look like? But he did that, and he tells us, why did he do that? So that I, can, so that I would not be put in that same block of people like these itinerant teachers who charge these exorbitant fees. I supported myself. And I mean, that's the extent to which he would go to make sure that he was always perceived as a man of integrity, that people would not question why he's doing what he's doing. He didn't want to be lumped into these nefarious, traveling, uh, sideshow guys that were part of the first century. And I th- that, to me, again, I, I take you back. I only used that as a, an example this morning. Did you see, that's a relevant issue for us. That's what Graham was really concerned about in 1948. And Paul, is, he, is, he is absolutely um, determined and adamant that what he does is clearly understood. It's not going to be misunderstood because that ultimately affects the message. Yep. Um, sometimes people separate businessmen from Christians. They say that, you know, you can't necessarily be a businessman and be a Christian. But Paul here knew the basic principles of business in the sense that he had to acquire supplies to make those tents, and he had to trade those tents for Absolutely. his income. Absolutely. So in a sense, he, he was a businessman operating when he needed to. Yeah. And also... a um, pastor and, and uh, apostle that complemented one another in this ministry. Yeah, absolutely. Are these, are these three things relevant to business? That's why I put it integrity in leadership, not integrity as an evangelist. I mean, you, you, can, you can level those charges against somebody in business, and if those charges pan out to be true... How does that affect that person's reputation? It's one of the reasons why years and years and years ago they set up the Better Business Bureau to make sure that if it has that stamp of approval. I, I served with them for about seven years on their integrity awards. I was one of the judges. And they were really, they were really adamant on this stuff. And then they moved to another stage of accreditation. They want you to be accredited with the BBC because their name means something about integrity and business dealings. And so, you know, I'm maybe making the point a little too hard, but I think those principles that Paul is dealing with here in response are applicable in everything we do. We don't want to do things where we're promoting error for financial gain. We don't want people to question our motives. And we certainly do not want to be known as somebody manipulative and deceptive for nefarious ends. So... I think these are universal type principles that are really applicable. 
Now, what I want you to notice here, this next paragraph, there are two, it's a word and a phrase that I want you to notice. Verse, um, what verse is that? Verse 7 through verse 12. This is one of the greatest passages in Paul's letters illustrating servant leadership. Do you see the two metaphorical phrases or statements? Just as a nursing mother, verse 7, let your eye go down to verse 11, as a father deals with his children. So if Paul was not an error-promoting, duplicitous, deceptive teacher in Thessalonica, what was he? He says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, verse 11, just as a father deals with his own children, that's what we were. Now, those two figures of speech are servants. A servant-type leader. So let's look at how he describes what he did. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. What does he mean by that? To share our lives as well. Time, investment of time, which is huge. Well, they, they did everything, not just ministry together. They were spending time eating together, socializing, yeah. working, yeah. helping each other. Yeah. They were doing other things, overcoming life together. And including, if you look at verse 9, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel to you. What do you think he means, toil and hardship, we work night and day so that we not be a burden? It would seem reasonable to conclude this is part of his tent-making, supportive ministry uh, work so that he wouldn't be a burden to them. I mean, this is, this is kind of, it's almost an overwhelming uh, verse to think about. I mean, when he says toil and hardship, he really means toil and hardship. <laughs> but he was so, so other-centered and so servant-oriented, we're so sensitive. We, we don't want to be a burden to you guys. So we're going to continue our work. We're going to do our tent-making business and all the things that were part of that. We don't know a great deal about that, other than he says he did that. But he was so concerned about them that that's what we're going to do. So we give not only preaching the gospel to you and sharing all the, the wonderful spiritual truths, but we share our lives with you as well. As you said, we ate with them and, and spent time with them, gave them time. But also, they, at night, they're working real hard so they don't have to be a burden to them during the day. Man. It's a very different kind of perspective than often what you you think of today, but that kind of servant spirit. So, let's try to apply this today. What does a leader who is like a nursing mother, what does that look like? Joel's that kind of banker, so what does that look like? Daryl's that kind of insurance man. What does that look like? Dave's that kind of construction guy. What does that look like? Were you going to say something, Dave? Well, I was just going to think just very gentle. 
you know, um, that, that kind of comes up a lot because, you know, I, the people I deal with every day, employees and subcontractors, they need lots of gentleness. And I'm kind of mm. thinking of the nursing mother, how that, Great like, word. I have to be very careful with what I even kind of say because sometimes they'll take it really the wrong way because, mm. like, they're a little kid almost, even though they're a grown adult. Yeah. If they, yeah. If you say something to one of the subs, then he'll just get his feelings off. <laughs> and knowing when to be gentle. Mm-hmm. And, and those right words and fra- even tone of voice sometimes. Yeah, that's good. I like that word, gentle. I find that as leaders, that's very difficult to figure that out because you kind of have to toe the line most of the time. But I had one of my senior managers, senior employees come to me, and she was very offended by something you know that seemed minor. Mm. But, you know, she, her kind of spirit was crushed a little bit by mm. that. So I think that's kind of what Paul's talking about. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's a great word, gentle, gentleness. That doesn't, that doesn't mean you're not firm. That doesn't mean you don't have standards, but it's just it's how you are communicating. You know. With intent. With what? With intention? With intent. Oh, intention. Okay. Intention, I got it. Mm-hmm. Your future is vested in them. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean, investing in them? What, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? Putting a little of yourself into them. Hmm. I think it's also making them more valuable, too. You know, if they're, you're being, one way to be gentle is if you can see that they don't hmm. understand or they don't know how, hmm. it, it's, it's not your job to, hmm. it's, it's not very good leadership to, so, well, just just figure it out. You know, to, to, if you, you figure really it out. know they yeah. don't understand, mm. you're investing in them by mm. making them more valuable mm. by explaining it, by teaching. Mm. It's kind of a teaching. Thing. Or in getting them into a situation where they can learn and improve and be more valuable to accomplish what you want them to accomplish. That's okay. Go learn it yourself. Figure it out. I'll be back in a week. See if you figured it out yet. That may or may not be the best way to do that, you know. Anything else? I, I, I just want to say I, I've seen some from some of the comments. I've seen these men use that in in their businesses, mm. and mm. Um, it does carry over. Mm. It is part of who they are, mm. what defines them. Do you remember? Uh, everybody was reading this book about ten years ago called "Good to Great," Jim Collins' classic book, and in the book. Um, it's, there's, a lot, there's a lot in that book. It's, it's, he's not a Christian as far as I know. He's not writing from that vantage point at all. But he was trying to figure out what's the difference between a good company, a good business, and he has a parallel book that deals with not-for-profits as well. What, what's the distinction between a good business and a great business? And he defines those and talks with them. They're, they're generally pretty pretty helpful. It's really fascinating. I think it's chapter five. I'm not sure I remember. Maybe it's six. But he talks about the leader. And he has five levels of leadership. And level five leadership is really, he doesn't call it that, but level five is really servant leadership. It's the nurturing, gentle, intentional, helping to develop and grow people kind of leader. Instead of the dictatorial, top down, here's, here's, here it is, here's the order, now do it. I don't care what you have to do, just do it. I don't care what you have to do, just do it. That's, it's a, that's not a great company. Because in, in the companies then with a the servant-type leader, everybody in the organization understands their part, their role. They feel valued. They feel affirmed. They understand what the CEO is doing. They understand his vision. They see they're a part of it, even if they're sweeping the floors. That's, in a sense... That nurturing mother, that's the kind of metaphor that Paul, that's what we're doing with you guys in Thessalonica. We're just pouring ourselves into you to help you you come to faith, to help you grow and be nurtured. Then we're going to move on because now you have enough of leaders, your local leaders in the body, to help carry on what we started. I think it involves as well because uh, certainly a mother does this, doesn't she? Always seeing the potential. You know, and, and kind of figuring out what that is, and that's a tremendous insight a leader can have. But where the strengths 
and how the con- and, and in a in a sense that's a pastoral leader is always looking for how how, how do you fit here in this ministry and directing and channeling not a passive role and this certainly Paul's not describing a passive role here at all look at the other metaphor it's introduced in verse 10 you are witnesses and so is God of how holy righteous and blameless we were among you okay they're nurturing mothers but they're also he's also saying as we're among you, you're our witnesses. Didn't you observe our holy, righteous, blameless way of living? Put that another way. A good leader is not only a servant, nurturing, but a good leader is also example. an example, a model. He walks, this is a cliche, but I think it fits. He walks what he talks. And the gospel is about becoming holy, righteous, and blameless. And Paul says, you're our witness. God is too, he's our witnesses. Isn't that what you saw? You didn't see duplicitous, deceptive, greed-centered people. You saw people, we were living, we were living what we were talking about. I won't ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, exactly. Why does he use the past tense rather than present tense? Well, I think, Daryl, it's because, remember, he's down in Corinth now. Okay. And, and he's asking them to reflect on when we were with you, past tense. That's the only explanation I think that makes sense. Yeah. Now he has a third point he wants to make. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Now, notice here you might have a little bit different translations of some of these very important Greek words around the table here, depending on your translation. I'm using NIV because I like the NIV in chapter 2. As a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Now, this is a sexist question, but I'm still going to ask it. Why does he say, as a father, we did this? He said, we're like nurturing mothers. Now, you may be trying to be gender equal here, you know, as I talk about Muslim. But, or do you think there's more to it? He says, as a father deals with his own children. Encouraging, comforting, urging. You know, when you pull in the, uh, the Greek, it's That's right. So That's where we're headed. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. My question is why does he say father here? Why didn't you just continue with the mother metaphor? Joe? My dear? Well, continuing on the sexist. <laughs> track, my, the New American Standard says exhorting and encouraging and imploring you which to me are stronger terms mm. for uh, dealing with, with leadership and teaching and that sort of thing you know a little stronger than nursing uh, the nursing mother versus the exhorting encouraging imploring father so so again, I think the, the role of the father in a family is more, not that he can't be 
nursing, but you know, mm-hmm. more uh, showing example, leadership, uh, teaching, leading, that sort of thing. Because from God's perspective, whom does he hold accountable? The Father. The Father. Whether you accept it or not, whether you think that shouldn't be, from God's perspective, he holds the Father accountable for the family. The Father is to be the spiritual leader of the home. Now, those two sentences I just uttered are extremely unpopular sentences in 2015. I mean, they really, they're incendiary in certain circles. I mean, it's really hard to talk about that. But you have to put this in the context of all 66 books of the Bible. That is how God looks at the family. That's how God established the family, Genesis 2. And that is, you see it both by negative example as well as by positive teaching. That is how God views it. Paul or someone else said that, you know, through Adam, sin entered the world. Romans 5.12. Even though Eve technically... Yeah, yeah she... First, but he was there and he didn't In the whole chapter 5 of Romans, which he, Eve isn't he not even mentioned. Exactly. And again, that's, you know, it's just a not terribly popular thing to teach today. But I do think that is why he chooses to do that. Because it is the, this is the father's responsibility. That doesn't mean the mother and other brothers and sisters don't help in this. But it is the father's primary responsibility to make sure that this is occurring. So let's look at these words. Uh, Joel has NASB. I have NIV. Encouraging, exhorting, uh, comforting, urging, uh, exhorting. What's the second one? Imploring. Imploring. Encouraging and, and exhorting. Exhorting, Okay. These are intense words. Let's think about each one of these. <clears throat> encouraging. Is that exhorting in, in NASB? The first one? Exhorting. It is exhorting. Okay, exhorting, encouraging. Um, exhorting, NIV is trying, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, as you exhort, you are in effect encouraging, but it is to use strong, positive appeals. You are exhorting. You're, um, through those exhortations, you're encouraging people to change. You're encouraging people to, to change. The second word is comforting. It's, it's, a, it's a soothing, that's a little bit of a softer word, but it's a soothing, comforting as you slam them along the side of the head with the two-by-four kind of direction. And then urging or imploring, that's, that's, that's intentional, it's directional, it's intentional, it's, it's directional, and it's passionate. Don't be satisfied with the status quo in your spiritual life. Don't be satisfied with where you are. God's not done with you yet. I exhort you. I, with words of comfort, but passionately urging, imploring you, move on in your walk with Christ. That's the book, in the book of Hebrews, that's what the author's doing. Stop wallowing in the ABCs. Go on to maturity in Christ. That's what he says five times in the book of Hebrews. Stop wallowing in the elementary stuff of your faith. Go on to maturity. So Paul is saying, as a father, as a mother, we nurtured you. We cared for you. We watched over you. And we served as a good model for you of what we were teaching. And as a father... I almost said something that I'm glad I didn't say. As a father, we want you to get off your duff and move on to maturity. Because that's God's program for you. That's God's agenda for you. Remember, uh, Galatians 4.19, Romans 8.29, 2 Corinthians 3.16. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. And that's not status quo. That's process process of growth and we need we need people 
to help us get off our duff and move on. We need that challenge. Your pastor is one of the people that should be, is your pastor should be doing that. That should be the effect that his preaching should have on your life. As you read or listen to messages or talks, the Bible study like this thing, that's, that's, what it's, that's the reason I do these things. It's to get you guys moving on to maturity. It's a process. And that's why we need each other to do this. You, you, you can hardly do this on your own as a Lone Ranger. You just can hardly do it. You, you can to an extent because it is your responsibility, but there's that constant prodding that's needed. And as we said, that's what we did, like a father. A father does this to his son. A father does this to his daughter. Always exhorting while you comfort, but always imploring and urging passionately, don't be satisfied with the status quo. And it's a, you know, it's, it's a great, it's a, it's a great analogy, it, it seems to me. Nurturing mother, exhorting father, which is what the family is. Now, if I can make one quick comment here, when you're, when you're with children who don't have a nurturing mother and an exhorting father, you can really see the difference. So. Spiritually, if we don't have nurturing mothers and exhorting fathers, maybe we're not going to be growing. So it's kind of like we, we draw from that. That's part of our need. That's the way God wired us. We need the nurturing, and we need the boot every now and then. We need both in order to be all that the Lord wants us to be. And Paul says, that's, that's what we were among you. We're not like these guys that you're lumping us in that barrel of, that's not who we are. You know that. And he reviews it. And I think for us, we can take away from this some really valuable leadership hints, whether, you know, you're the, talking about the leadership in your home or in your business or a community or church or whatever. This is a great passage on drawing some really, really helpful because we want to live lives worthy of God, because in effect we represent him. And then, and Woody referred to this a moment ago, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, I want you to think about that for just a minute. If he would have put the period, to live lives worthy of God, period, we'd have gotten it. We would have gotten that. But he chooses to add who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Why does he add that? Remind them, right, reminding them that it's not a closed box. Mm, excellent. This isn't a closed box. There's something beyond the physical. This is giving physical words to describe your future. Kingdom, God, and glory. That's your destiny. That's your future. Why tell them that? How can that be a motivator? How can a truth like that be a motivator? You're forgetting a principle I taught you. Future, pro future promise affects present behavior. Future promises are to affect present behavior. Because you know this is where you're headed. You know this is your destiny. You know this is God's goal for you. He calls you into kingdom of God and glory. That should motivate. Now, I'm going to be real theological here. I'm going to really impress you with this. The Church of Jesus Christ is an eschatological community. That's a big phrase, isn't it, Joe? Eschatological, that's end times. It's the future. It is. We are a forward-looking, kingdom-oriented community of people. We know where we're going. Or maybe you put it another way. We know where God is taking us. And so that, that influences how we live. We are living in light of the hope of the future. And that is to motivate and encourage us to live as we will be is to live that way now. And I, I think that that's one of the reasons why 
<clears throat> teaching prophecy or in theology called eschatology is so important. It, it, it gives you that perspective that God has a plan, and here's I'm going to give you the framework of what that plan at the end is going to look like. And it's, it, God's in control of things. And so he's just saying, it, he could have ended that, as I said, he could have put the period after God, worthy of God, period. But remember, as God has a future and a destiny, you and I are future-oriented people, our hope, in the future, and of course our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ is coming out, is to motivate how we live now. Don't forget, Jesus, when in Matthew 24 and 25, he answers the questions the disciples ask about. They ask him a bunch of end-time questions. And he teaches, he responds, and then he says, let me tell you some stories. And he tells them, he tells them a couple of parables. One of them is the parable of the talents. Do you remember that? You know, you have three guys. Each gets a little different. And the focus isn't on the amount. What was they focus on? They, they, they didn't know when their master was coming back, but they knew their master was coming back. And they were to take what he had given them and be good stewards of it. Because you don't know when I'm coming back. So be ready. Be good stewards. Be faithful. So that's one preaching. If I know my master's coming back, I know that the kingdom of God and the glory is the future. One of the takeaways from that is, are you ready? And are you faithful? And that's, that's good. That's a motivator. I know what the plan is. I don't know the details. Of it. I, don't know, I don't know dates. I don't know when it's going to occur. But I know. So how does that affect? Are you ready? And are you faithful? That's, that's two important reasons to have some understanding of what God's doing. And so I think that's why he tacks that on, just to remind you he's called you into his kingdom and glory. That's future-oriented stuff. It should affect how you live now. All right? Got it? I did not think we would get to verse 12. I thought it would be bunny trail type questions, but, but you were really cooperative today, so we got it done. It was, it's good stuff, isn't it? It's good stuff. Tomorrow what we want to do is um, is get Dave to get control of his phone. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But we're going we're gonna to look at his uh, a little further statement of his thanksgiving for them, some really remarkable things he says about them. So we'll just keep pressing on, all right? Let me pray here. Father, we're grateful for... Uh, the day you've created, thanks for the sunshine today, even though it's kind of a cold, windy day. Uh, sunshine is always a wonderful gift, and we want to be careful to thank you even for something like that today. Thanks for these men, for all you're doing in their lives. Um, we're all in process. We're all being conformed to the image of Christ. We're all, in that sense, on the same path. Uh, some of us have walked with you longer, but we're not any better. We're all in the process, and we thank you for this teaching today from Paul about um, his role in this little church at Thessalonica. He wasn't like these other teachers that uh, were very deceptive and manipulative and controlling and, and nefariously selfish and greedy. Uh, no, he represented you. And he was like a nurturing mother, an exhorting father who cared for them and was serious about modeling what he taught. That's a pretty good definition of a leader servant leader who is gentle and caring, sees potential, is intentional about trying to help people grow. That takes a lot of time. It's investing in people. It's investing for eternity in people. And that's important for us. Help us to be good, good leaders in all the areas of our lives, whatever those might be. Everything we do is eternally significant to you. So Lord, we just ask you to help us to represent you well in all the things that we do and say. Help us to be faithful, good stewards, and we ask this in your son's name.